if we assume that our senses evolved and were shaped by natural selection, the probability is zero that we see reality as it is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Feedback Loop, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture from the individual to society at large. I'm your host, Stephen Parton, coming at you from Singularity University. This week, our guest is none other than Donald Hoffman, cognitive psychologist and longtime professor at UC Irvine. While in some ways Donald originally struck me as a relatively formal and traditional scientist, I've come to appreciate him more as a sort of rebel, a revolutionary, a no BS, old school thinker whose incredible passion is likely to be a spearhead for human thought. Likely, one of the reasons for this is that he used to have cloak-and-dagger meetings with a group called the Helmholtz Club, where he and other thinkers, including Francis Crick, who, with James Watson, made the famed discovery of the double helix DNA, used to gather in secret to discuss the mysteries of consciousness. And I'd wager another reason is because the focus of his work right now actually goes directly against what many scientists and most people believe, which is that the objective reality we all live in, share, and perceive is actually the true reality. He doesn't believe this. His idea, which he details in his brand new book, A Case Against Reality, argues that the world we perceive isn't what is actually there. In other words, a chair, a tree, another person don't actually look like what we think they do. And not just by a little bit, we're talking a major difference here between the truth and what we actually see. The two are nowhere close to the same. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview on some of his ideas and some of the ideas that we talked about in this podcast, because frankly, it can be a bit complicated to truly appreciate the nuance that Donald is digging into here. He explains it very well. It's just that these are such big topics that I think a little foundational knowledge will go a very long way in ensuring the dialogue is as rich as it can possibly be for you. At the heart of Hoffman's work is the idea that we evolved for fitness instead of truth. The basic idea being that the actual objective reality we live in is so overwhelming in its complexity and its abundance of information that we evolve senses that actually hide the truth for the sake of giving us a lie that was useful and that would help us survive. A metaphor that Hoffman often uses and that was actually the metaphor that originally attracted me to him in the first place is the metaphor of a desktop interface. In this metaphor, you basically want to think of reality in its truest form as something akin to the ones and zeros and electrical charges that are being shifted and calculated inside of a computer. Now imagine if you had to work directly with these electrical components to do anything on a computer. If you wanted to send an email, for instance, you'd have to compute binary for every letter. You'd have to compute binary for finding the email address, for initiating internet protocols, and to do a million other things. If this was how you actually had to send an email, it would never happen because you would be so overwhelmed by the complexity and it would be so inefficient as to just be completely useless. So to get around this, humans created a desktop interface. The desktop interface on a computer lets you work with icons, a user interface, which hide all of that complexity and provide us instead with a useful lie. Think about a blue folder icon on your desktop, for example. 
Now, you know that there isn't really a blue icon in the computer. There's no actual blue folder that exists anywhere in reality. You could rip the whole computer apart and you would never find a blue folder. The thing that really exists in the world is a specific set of electrical charges and calculations that are happening inside the material of your computer. And that icon is just an illusion that represents that. This is Hoffman's argument that human senses are a user interface, a useful lie that shaped our perceptions to see illusory icons and symbols rather than the actual physics happening behind the interface. And evolution, in its inexorable momentum towards survival, decided to continually tilt us towards this perceived lie rather than let us continually be overwhelmed by the truth. Hence, we evolved for fitness rather than truth. Now, I don't know about you, but after hearing all this, my mind was completely blown. It's an argument that feels nearly infallible to me, and I couldn't wait to hear more about it from Donald himself. And now it's my honor to bring that conversation to you with the addition of some absolutely interesting explorations into how we're merging with technology, how Tinder is changing our evolutionary mating habits, the future of AI, and a whole lot more. Real quickly, though, before we jump in, I just want to give a quick thanks to Annika Harris for connecting Donald and I and to all of you for your feedback and support. I am very proud to announce that we just broke into the top 15% most listened to podcast in the world after only a few weeks of having gone public. So thank you so much for making this dream a reality for me personally and for supporting SU in our attempt to positively spearhead this transformation towards the singularity. Now, I'm going to give a little bit more love to Donald's book, A Case Against Reality, which comes out August 13th, which should be about the exact time this podcast has been released. So if this conversation was of interest to you, go check out his book. Uh, it's far more robust than we could possibly cover in this conversation, and he gets into a lot more of the history and the details of his ideas. And now I think that's enough exposition and introduction, so let's go ahead and get into it. Everyone, please welcome to the podcast, Donald Hoffman. What's your background and what led you to getting onto this kind of um, controversial topic in some ways? Right. My background is I started studying visual perception as an undergraduate at UCLA. Found it very fascinating, the, the neurobiology of the visual system and all the re information about receptive fields and so forth. Uh, I, I found it truly exciting and, and I wanted to know more. And in taking a class at UCLA, I ran across the work of David Marr, who was a professor at MIT in what's now the Brain and Cognitive Sciences Department and in the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT. And his work was revolutionary, I could tell. He was talking about visual perception, not just in terms of casual theories on pen and paper, but about building working robotic vision systems and being precise enough in your understanding of visual perception that you could write down mathematical models that you could turn into computer programs that could actually work to let computers see in 3D and see motion and objects and so forth. And I thought that that kind of rigor and that kind of no-nonsense approach to studying perception was just what I wanted to be involved in. So I began to work 
and think about a general theory of perception. I was trying to not just study specific problems in visual perception, like how do we see objects and recognize objects? How do we see depth from motion? How do we see depth from stereo? Each one of those is its own interesting mathematical <clears throat> topic. I began to wonder if there was a, a general theory of perception, a, a general formal structure that might encompass all of these different specific um, interesting problems. I began to work on that as, as a, a graduate student, but of course you have to do something really concrete. And so I worked on object perception and three-dimensional motion perception um, for, my, for my dissertation there. But when I came to UC Irvine, I, I finished my PhD in 1983 and, and then became a professor at, at UC Irvine in the Cognitive Sciences Department. And I began to work with a mathematician at UC Irvine named Bruce Bennett on developing this mathematical model of perception more, more generally, and then also with Chetan Prakash. And by 1986, um, I began to realize that this model was suggesting to me that we're constructing everything that we see. And I began to question whether what we see necessarily reflects reality. <clears throat> and the more I began to look at the math and think about what I knew about visual perception, both the experiments and the theory, the more I began to wonder and then to doubt that, that we might be seeing the truth. And so I finally, in, in uh, 1998, published a book called Visual Intelligence. And, and in the last chapter of that book, I put out the idea that we don't see the truth. It's just a user interface that, that, our, that our senses um, don't sh are, are not a window on reality, but more like the desktop interface on your computer. Like when, so if you have an icon for an email that you're writing, for example, and the icon is blue and rectangular in the middle of your screen, that doesn't mean that the email itself in the computer is blue and rectangular in the middle of the computer. I mean, that's that, that, that anybody who thinks that misses the point of the interface, it's there not to show you the truth, which in this metaphor is the, you know, the circuits and software and and voltages in the computer, the, the desktop interface is there to hide that truth and give you simple eye candy that lets you control the truth without knowing what the truth is and how it all works. And so I began to think of our perceptions that way. Was that a, was that a moment for you that really blew your mind? Because I, I mean, for me, when I, when I read, I think it was your piece in the Atlantic uh, about the case against reality, <clears throat> and I heard that desktop metaphor, I actually had to kind of have a moment where I stepped back and reconsidered a lot of like what I thought about evolution and perception. It was just a, it's a really powerful metaphor. And I wonder if for you, it was that realization was something that because it happened over such a long period of time, maybe it was something you had come to grips with, or did you kind of have an aha moment where you kind of had to step back and really reflect on how deep that deep of the, how profound that is. Uh, even though the work was gradual, the, there was a moment in 1986 in my lab with my, my two collaborators, Bruce Bennett and Chetan Prakash, where I suddenly realized what this was saying. And it was like a punch to the gut. It was a real shock. I, I, I remember I had to sit down. It was, it was too much. And I, I had to let the new idea sort of 
simmer. It was it was so profoundly different from what we just naturally believe from infancy. You know, <clears throat> Piaget is famous for talking about um, object permanence. That that a, a little child he he claimed at around eighteen months or so of age um, learns that a baby doll um, still exists even if you put it behind a pillow and you can't see it. And, and at that age, the, the child will search for the doll behind the pillow, whereas before that age, you put the doll behind the pillow and it's gone. Later research showed that we, we get this notion of object permanence even earlier, maybe as early as three or four months. And so Piaget's idea was, was right, but, but his experiments um, um, weren't, weren't you know, sharp enough to show how early this, this happens. And so, so we seem to be born with a program that at three or four months of age makes our minds believe that there is an external world that exists pretty much as we see it even when we don't look so that that notion of objective reality uh, happens to us before we can do any before we can defend ourselves <laughs> before we're able to uh you know reason about the idea and ask ourselves is that right and so by the time we're you know, adults, we've had that idea just as the background assumption since we were three or four months old. It's really hard for us to question it. It's, it's, and that's why it was to me a psychological, you know, shot to the gut. And for most of us, it's really, really hard because we deeply believe that. Sure. And did that, how did that reconcile with some of your earlier momentum? Because from my understanding, you originally had the idea that or one of the original impetuses for your trajectory in life was that you kind of wanted to see if we were actually machines. Is that correct? You had this notion that we might be machines. You wanted to either prove or disprove that. that that's exactly right. That um, with, with the rise of artificial intelligence um, and, you know, computer programming and all that it could do, it, it it's a, a non-trivial question. I mean, is there, you know, and also the idea that from the neurosciences that uh, our brains are basically neurobiological machines. They're probabilistic machines, not deterministic machines, but but nevertheless machines. And yet they're, you know, from a very personal point of view and for various spiritual traditions, you know, there's this other point of view that says, no, there's something special about us. We're, we're more than just a machine. And so I, I wondered if we could take that question and turn it into a genuine scientific question. I, I even wondered that as a teenager. You know, when I was 17 years old, I was pretty geeky and thinking about that, that kind of thing. My, my dad was a minister or an associate minister at a church, and I was told not to think about this stuff. I mean, that um, the kinds of questions I was raising were, were not appropriate, and I should just believe. And on the other hand, I was getting a very, very different story in my science classes. You know, so as a teenager, you're you're, you're faced with two very, very different worldviews, and you know, I wanted to think for myself about what you know, what what am I? Because that's sort of a big question. What what am I? Am I just a machine? If so, I'd like to know that. If I'm more than a machine, what what more is there? And and so I began. So that's one reason I went to MIT and worked in the artificial intelligence lab. What better way to understand what machines are and what machines can do than be in an artificial intelligence lab where you're trying to build them, 
and you know and and make them work and what i found at mit was hey um there, in principle there seemed to be nothing in the perceptual systems of humans that couldn't be mimicked eventually by ais i mean the ais at the time um you know of course were nowhere near human performance but um but you know it, it looked to me already at the at the point there as a, as a graduate student that it was just a matter of time and, and and now with deep learning algorithms and so forth that are beating us at a lot of stuff um it, it, the question is you know how much better than us can ais be not can they get as good as humans yeah i'd love to i'd love to come back to that but i think before we go there that led you ultimately to this concept of fitness versus truth yes i think that's something that is very helpful to understand as we move forward um because that that kind of seems to be your the basis of your mathematical model and some of your studies is, is that concept between fitness and truth. Do we see things for fitness or do we actually see reality as it is? That, that's right. So, so when I published my book, Visual Intelligence, in 1998, that last chapter was dismissed by most people. They, they liked the, the first part of the book because there I was just talking about the, the, you know, the nice findings of the field and they're quite interesting. And then I went off the rails in that last chapter, the stuff about a user interface and we don't see the truth. Well, you know, he's, he's a nut there, but, but, you know, at least the first part was okay. And so for about 10 years, um, there was really no pushback or, or, or interest on the interface idea. And so I realized around 2008 that there was only one way for people to be persuaded to take this seriously. And that was if I could show that evolution by natural selection does not favor true perceptions, that it actually favors an, organisms that have just an interface for their sensory systems. So the nice thing about evolution by natural selection is it's now a mathematically precise theory. And just a couple of years earlier, um, uh, a guy named Nowak at, at Harvard had, pushed, had published a wonderful book called Evolutionary Dynamics that, that explained evolutionary game theory in, uh, in great detail. Uh, but made it very accessible. So I was able to learn evolutionary game theory and my, had a couple of graduate students. We learned it together and we started running evolutionary game simulations. My thought was that seeing the truth would just not work because it was too complicated and would take too much time and energy. And that turns out to be true, but it was not the most interesting thing we found. What we found was something I didn't expect. What I found was that the, the, the there's a, as you said as you mentioned there's the notion of fitness in evolution and and rather than just like talk about it as a technical thing I think a, a metaphor might be the best way to help people understand evolutionary game theory and this notion of fitness evolutionary game theory invites us to think about biology a life as like a video game if you're in a video game you have to hunt for points as fast as you can when you're at a, at a certain level of the game. You're grabbing points as fast as you can, and if you get enough points in a short enough time, you get to go to the next level. Otherwise, you die, it's game over, you have to put in more money or, or, or start the program over again. So in evolution, it's very much like that. The, the, instead of points, there are what, what, called, what are called fitness payoffs. Uh, and if you get enough fitness payoffs during your lifetime, you don't go to the next level of the game, but your, your genes, your offspring can pass to the next level of, of the game. And so fitness payoffs 
are like the points in the video game. But but to be more more precise, take the example I like to use of just like a, a T-bone steak. I'm assume for, for sake of argument that the T-bone steak is part of objective reality, although I don't believe that. And you can ask what is the fitness payoffs that a T-bone steak might offer to various organisms. Like so for a hungry lion uh, looking to eat, it offers a lot of fitness payoffs. For that same lion looking to mate, uh, it offers nothing. And for you know a rabbit in any steak, that a T-bone steak offers no fitness payoffs. And so what you see is that um, the fitness payoffs depend on whatever objective reality might be. So whatever the state of the world might be, but they also depend on the organism, like the lion versus the rabbit, its state, like hungry versus full, and the action, like feeding, fighting, fleeing, or mating. The, and so fitness, so more abstractly, fitness payoffs are functions. They depend on the state of the world. And what we discovered is that those, so we're going to be tuned, our evolution is going to tune our, shape our perceptions so that we are seeing as much of the fitness payoffs as we need to stay alive. We won't see all of the fitness payoffs, even those are too complicated, but we'll see some simplified, dumbed down representation of fitness payoffs that is, that's good enough to keep us alive and, and, and to just beat out the competition. So it's, it's not that we're seeing the truth about fitness payoffs, we're getting a dumbed down representation of fitness payoffs. And here's what we found. The fitness payoff functions themselves destroy information about the structure of the world. Whatever structures the world might have, like order relationships, like, like you might, if, if, if oxygen was a true thing in the world, right, the oxygen concentrations could go from 0% to 100%. That would be a total order because it, the concentration is a number that goes in linear order from zero to 100%. Um, there are other structures like um, metrics, how distances between things, topologies, you know, neighborhood relationships, groups, um, symmetry groups, and, and, and there are all sorts of structures. This gets more mathematical, but, but for every mathematical structure that you could imagine the world have, so I don't have to assume I know what the truth is, and that's the point. I don't have to assume that I know what the world is to get my theorem. I can just say whatever the structures in the world might be, it, I can, we can show that the fitness payoff functions almost surely, and that's a technical term, that, that means except for a probability zero set, almost surely fitness payoff functions destroy the structures of the world. They don't preserve them. And so there's nothing for evolution to work with in terms of showing us the truth about the structures of the world because it's showing us the fitness payoffs and the fitness payoffs have erased the structures of the world. And in those studies, you found that the when you do optimize for fitness or you optimize for the true structure, the true information of the world, it's always, it's pretty much always the case, almost surely the case that uh, the fitness will always outperform and make it to the next level uh, more often, for example, in the video game analogy, than the uh, algorithm that is wired for truth it that that will tend to die out as a species so to speak whereas the fitness optimized um, program will tend to pass on its genes and live on 
That's that's correct. My my graduate students, um, Ryan Marion, um, uh, <clears throat> I'm blanking on the other one for the moment, but but, but they they um. They found that in, in, in about a million simulations that the organisms that saw reality as it is um, would go extinct when they competed against organisms of equal complexity that saw none of reality and were just tuned to fitness payoffs. And, and then after that, I, you know, I was pretty confident in the result. So I proposed a theorem and uh, a colleague, a friend of mine named Chetan Prakash um, actually proved that theorem. So it's, we have the simulations and a theorem that, that basically say, uh, if we assume that our senses evolved and were shaped by natural selection, the probability is zero that we see reality as it is. So it's, oh, the, the other guy, the, the Justin Mark was the other graduate student that, that worked on it, Justin Mark. My apologies to Justin. <laughs> um, one of the ideas that I really, really loved um, in this regard, especially in relation to evolution and this idea of fitness versus truth is the current understanding of synesthesia and, and people who, you know, can mix their senses basically. Um, could, could you speak a little bit to that? Cause I, I, when I heard that in the pro and kind of how that could play out generationally through time, that was another, you know, epiphany type moment for me. It, it's pretty wild. So, one of the things that comes out of this idea that we don't see the truth is just an interface is that space-time, as you perceive it, is just a three-dimensional desktop. And physical objects like tables and chairs, the sun and the moon, are merely three-dimensional icons in that desktop. And that seems preposterous. I mean, we all believe, as Piaget pointed out, in object permanence. We believe that the objects exist, that Surely the moon exists even if no one, if no creature were there to observe it, surely. And I'm saying absolutely not that space-time itself does not exist independent of you. The space-time that you perceive is your data structure. It's, it's a representation of, of fitness payoffs. And so are the three-dimensional objects that you perceive. And this seems so crazy that I began to look around to ask, is there any kind of example in, in human perception and human neuroscience, where I could show that yes, people do use objects not to see the truth, but as just data structures. And I found it in synesthesia. Um, so one, one example, just to be concrete, there is a guy named Michael Watson. Everything he tasted on his tongue, he also felt as a three-dimensional object in space. He could, it had a weight, he could feel the weight. It had a temperature, it had a texture, it had a three-dimensional shape. So Mint felt like a tall, cold, smooth column of glass. In front, and he could feel it in three dimensions all around him with his hands, he could feel it. Um, Caro syrup felt like a bunch of BBs. He could feel all the shapes of the BBs, and, and like a, bo a box of BBs. Uh, Angostura bitters felt like a basket of ivy, and he could feel around the leaves of the ivy, feel the sponginess of the, of the leaves, feel the texture of the leaves, the temperature in three dimensions. Here, and, and there are other examples of this, um, Carol Steen sees three-dimensional objects when she hears sounds. So she's using three-dimensional objects with very, very specific 
um, shapes and colors and textures on the surfaces and dynamics in 3D. So here we have people, human beings, that are seeing or feeling three-dimensional objects not as images of the truth, but as abstract data structures that are useful for them. For Michael Watson, it turned out he was a great cook. He didn't just have the sense of taste, he had this three-dimensional object that he would feel for every taste. And that gave him an extra dimension, uh, several dimensions of information that he used to become a very, very good cook. And, and Carol Steen also finds it very, very useful in her art, for example, to, to have this new synesthetic visual perception of, of three, three dimensions, including some colors that, that she calls Martian colors. She doesn't see them in everyday life. She only sees them in the synesthetic sense. They're, they're different colors. So the reason I talk about this is here is an example with real people in which they're perceiving 3D objects not as mirrors on the truth, but as abstract data structures that are useful. And what I'm claiming is that's true for all of us. The moon is just a data structure. There is an objective reality. By the way, I'm not denying that there is something um, that exists even if I die. I have life insurance, so I'm betting my money that uh, you know when I die, there will still be you know other creatures around, you know my my family and so forth. So so I, I'm a realist in that sense. I, I think there is an objective reality. I'm just saying that the objective reality, whatever whatever it is is unlike anything that we perceive in a radical way. I'm not just saying that, you know, well, you know, the table that I see here, maybe my perceptions are exaggerating the shape a little bit or getting the color a little bit wrong. I'm saying something deeper. I'm saying that the very language of space and time and shapes and colors and textures and motions and smells is the wrong language to describe objective reality. You could not frame a true description of whatever objective reality is in that language. And, but our perceptions of objects like the moon or an apple and so forth, these are data structures. Now, now I'm thinking about it just from the point of view of evolution by natural selection. What are, what are physical objects? You know, most of my colleagues say that when I see an apple, I'm estimating the true shape and color of a real apple that would exist even if I weren't around. I'm saying, no, that's not, that's not the right way to think of it. Um, instead, an apple is a data structure that I create on the fly and I destroy and I create it to report fitness payoffs. For example, I, when I see a data structure that I describe as an apple, uh, I know it's not going to bite me. Uh, I know it's not going to chase me. I know that I could eat it probably and, and, and get some calories from it. The shape of it is telling me how I can reach and grab it and how to bite it and so forth. I'm not gonna try to bite it on the top, I'm gonna bite it on the side and, and so forth. So it's telling me about fitness payoffs and how I could get those fitness payoffs. When I see a snake, I'm getting different fitness payoffs. Probably not something you wanna grab, probably wanna stay away and so forth unless you're highly trained, you know, snake tamer or something. So, so this is a completely different way of thinking about objects, not only from the, you know, every, day man on the street point of view, but even from my, my scientific colleagues who are experts in visual perception, most of us think of object perception as what we call Bayesian estimation. Our visual systems are trying to use Bayesian inferencing techniques to get the best estimate of the true shapes and colors and motions 
of real objects that are out there. We're estimating their true properties. And I'm saying that whole framework is wrong. And, and that's a radical claim for my, for my colleagues. So I'm saying that the right way to think about objects is that they're a solution to a really interesting technical problem. We have all these fitness payoff functions that govern our survival. Forget about the truth, reality, just the fitness payoffs. They're already really complicated. Even just perceiving the fitness payoffs in their full glory would be overwhelming. We can't do that. So evolution had to even co compactify and get rid of most of the fitness payoff stuff and compactify it down into some simple usable format that gives us just what we need to stay alive and act. And that's what space-time and physical objects are. They're a solution to a computational problem, a satisfying solution to the problem of representing fitness payoffs. Truth is just off the table. It's just about staying alive. To bring it back to the desktop analogy, it's, it's basically like if we wanted to navigate reality, it would be nearly impossible to compute binary and work with the electronics of reality in their, in their fullness. But because that's so overwhelming, we have this abstraction that we call consensus reality, which is maybe just a dominant evolutionary strain of synesthesia in a way. So we, our shared reality is just us all having basically evolved as a species towards one form of synesthesia that gives us a desktop interface to cover the binary. That, that, that's exactly right. We, the reason we can agree often about, you know, yeah, I see the moon, I see an apple and so forth, is because we have a similar interface. It's like you have a Mac operating system and I have a Mac operating system, so we can agree about, you know, its layout and what, what's, what's going to be there. And, and, and you're absolutely right that, that, you know, it's there to let us control the truth um, without having to know about the truth. You know, for example, if you, if you use Twitter and you're trying to tweet and you had to actually toggle bits in your computer to, to tweet, good luck. It, Twitter would never happen. You would never follow anybody and no one would ever follow you. There would be no tweets because you'd be spending all your time trying to figure out how to make the voltages in your computer change. So the, the, the nice thing about it is your desktop interface hides the truth and because it hides the truth, it's useful. So that gives me two questions, brings me to two questions. One, have we done any studies with synesthesia patients in like an fMRI machine where we've actually tested to see if maybe there's some like tactile activation in their fingers when they're tasting something? And, and secondly, with your um, studies between fitness and truth, is there a breaking point on the a level of truth uh, where it begins to deteriorate? In other words, how much of the objective reality, so to speak, do you think we uh, imagine and make up and um, create an illusion for versus what is actually there? Is it is it pretty, do you get pretty close to 100% truth, but you can't go all the way? Or is it like 10% truth is the optimal level? And beyond that, we start to see, you know, organisms die off quicker. Does, does that make sense? Oh, I see. Well, yeah, in terms of the, the simulations that we've done. So, yeah. How, how how much truth is beneficial versus detrimental? Right. Well, so the first one about the um, the brain imaging studies related to synesthesia, there have been a number of them. Uh, my friend, uh, uh, billionaire S. Ramakandran, who's a professor at UC San Diego, and his colleagues have, have done some studies, uh, fMRI studies, and, and there are many, many others. And, and they, they do find differences in brain activity between uh, synesthetics and, and those who are not synesthetics. Uh, uh, one of the things that seems to be involved 
Um, and it's not the only, so, so I'm not, by no means giving a full, you know, discussion of this literature. I think it's a really interesting literature, but there do seem to be connections between areas of the brain that are less connected in non-synesthetes. And so that seems to be one thing. So, so a lot of times there'll be, you know, synesthetes will, you know, things that we just hear, they might all, a synesthete might not only just hear it, they might see something like my friend Carol Steen. So in that case, we, we might expect that there are some, um, we would find co-activation of auditory and visual areas that we might not find as much uh, in non-synesthetes. So that, that seems to be one, one finding. In terms of um, how much truth will drive you extinct, it, it turns out in, in evolution, it all depends on your competition, right? So it's, it's, it's not an absolute scale. There are no selection pressures for us to, to get perfect understanding of fitness, just a little bit better than the competition. So, so as long as it's like the old joke, you know, their two friends are hiking around and all of a sudden they see a bear and, and, and they're scared to death. And one, one guy stops and starts, you know, tying up the shoes. And the guy says, do you think that tying up your shoes is going to help you outrun the bear? And he said, no, I just have to outrun you. And, and so then that's sort of the point in evolution is you don't have to be the fastest thing on the planet. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the competition that might be eaten by the bear. And so, so it, it turns out if you're competing against an organism that sees only fitness, then, then wasting any of your energy on truth is wasting your energy. But I, I like to put it this way. Um, if you're playing chess and you're hunting pawns, you're playing the wrong game and you're going to die. You're going to lose when you play against anybody who, who knows that a pawn is just a pawn and that the king is the real goal. And, and that's in, in life. Truth is just the truth. That's not what it's about. It's about the game is about getting fitness payoffs. And if you do anything besides that, you will always be less fit than, than a creature competition that, you know, just goes after the fitness payoffs. So in, in, in bottom line answer to your question, it's not safe to waste any of your perceptual capacity on pursuing the truth. It's not safe because as soon as you're against somebody who wastes none of their capacity on that, you're, 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 you're in trouble. So how does that carry over into your day-to-day -day life? Because I know as I get more and more involved in any kind of evolutionary neuropsychology type content, there's little bits and snippets that kind of, um, you know, bleed into to my normal ways that I navigate reality. This has to be some pretty profound stuff. I mean, for instance, a light example is just if you play chess, you know to optimize for fitness rather than truth. And there's your advantage in that. But do, do any of these cognitive tricks kind of bleed into your day-to-day -day life in, in pragmatic ways? Yes, I'm more and more, but it's taken many, many years. I mean, the the wiring of evolution for us to just assume that this is the truth is pretty strong. And, and so I understand the impulse to, to say, you know, this is crazy. Of course, space exists. Of course, the moon exists when no one observed. And, and, and I feel the same way, but slowly as I've been spending literally decades now, like 33 years at this point, intellectually thinking about this, it's starting to affect my perceptions. In, in the sense that I'm starting to 
feel like I'm just wearing a headset, like a virtual reality headset, right? And when I look over here and I see my desk, it's like if you're in virtual reality, say you're playing um, some video game like Grand Theft Auto with a virtual reality add-on. I look over here and I see um, the steering wheel of my car. Well, I know that there's no real steering wheel. I know that just when I look over here, I'm creating the three-dimensional steering wheel in my perceptions. And when I look over here, um, I, I've destroyed that steering wheel. It no longer exists. I've, I don't need it, so I don't create it. Now I'm over here, I'm looking at somebody else's car, right? The, someone's Jaguar that I'm gonna be chasing or something like that. And so now I'm starting to see everyday life that way. I look over here, I'm rendering a desk. Now I destroy that data structure. Now I'm rendering a chair. And I'm starting what, you know, but it, I usually lapse back into, yeah, I'm just seeing the, the table that's, that's there. I'm seeing the chair that's there. But, but every once in a while, I, it, I'm in a world where I just realize this is just a headset. This is just a virtual reality. Um, and there's something behind the virtual reality, but it's nothing like what I'm seeing. You know, I think that um, the next generation is going to get this. Virtual reality is becoming very compelling and immersive, just as compelling and immersive eventually as everyday life. <clears throat> it's not going to be, a <clears throat> excuse me, for a teenager, say in 10, 12 years. It's just not going to be a stretch of the imagination <clears throat> when they take off their headset and leave a virtual reality that was completely compelling and immersive, just as compelling as everyday life, to, to wonder, well, what about this? What I call the real world. <clears throat> Maybe I have a headset on all the time and I just didn't know it. I think it's, it's not going to be a real stretch. It, just in the same way that, you know, <clears throat> it was really tough for us 400 years ago to think that the earth might not be the center of the universe. But it's not really hard when we send rockets out into outer space and they start taking pictures of the earth and it's just a, a dot among many other dots. It, it no longer takes a genius. It just sort of becomes obvious. And I think that the kind of stuff I'm talking about right now for our generation is sort of tough. But I think for the next generation, it's just going to be like, you know, how come they didn't get it? How, how come... Our, you know, our parents were so, were so slow to get this idea because they'll just see it in everyday life. I definitely see that higher level of adaptability in the future generations. But I, I do wonder, do you also see as part of that adapting process some kind of evolutionary change to the, the fitness algorithm? Because we, we are having, you know, the, the digital realm, the Internet, um, you know, without even going into virtual reality, which is like that next level, but just the, just the internet alone and, and kind of how we in, interface with each other and technology, it seems like that's a second interface. So we kind of have this meta interface that's a second abstraction. Um, do, you, do you see that as something that starts to actually change our fitness algorithm? Do we, do we start evolving differently to compensate for this second abstraction? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I can give an, a, a, an example from our recent past over our species, how social interactions have changed us. So paleoanthropologists have studied the volume of hominid skulls, which is a good surrogate for how, the size of our, the volume of our brains. And 
what they found, what one paleoanthropologist, particularly John Hawkes, notes that our hominid ancestors, in fact, Homo sapiens, our brains were increasing until about 20,000 years ago in size. And then for the last 20,000 years, our brain size has been in free fall. Our brains have been shrinking as measured by the, the volumes of the skulls. <clears throat> and we've lost the, the entire volume of a tennis ball in only 20,000 years. It's huge. 10% of our brain mass is, is gone. And you might say, well, maybe it's because we're getting more convoluted and so forth. I, I doubt it. But what Hawks has found is that the volume of the brain shrunk the fastest where there were the bigger social groups of people. So the story that's suggested by this is the following. We were hunter-gatherers. We had very, very small social groups. You, you were alone with your family or a very, very small group. And you pretty much had to be a jack of all trades or die, right? We're not, we're not very strong. We're not very fast. We're clever. And that's how we, that's been the niche. We've, we've used cleverness to be able to adapt. We can't fight almost any other animal man to man. Just, we can't do it. We can't outrun them. Uh, you know, a hundred pound monkey can rip apart a 200 pound man, no problem. I mean, it's, it's not even a contest. So it was, our, it was our intelligence that, that gave us the flexibility to survive. But then we were so smart, we invented agriculture. And with agriculture, now you need to settle down, right? You, you can't be wandering around. You need to tend the crops and you, you begin to build a social system because now all those crops are a real interesting target for other hunter-gatherers, right? You've done all this work for the better part of the year. They might like to come in and just take uh, your, your year of work, kill you and, and, and get all this free food. So now you, you have to not only work together to grow the crops, you have to build small communities to, for defense of the valuable thing that you've created. So you start to get some serious social organizations because of agriculture. And when you get that, you start to get a division of labor and a social safety net. I don't have to be brilliant at everything. I just need to know how to plant the crops or do this. Joe over here, he can make the shoes. Sam over there, you know, he, he can make some, you know, he, he knows about medicine and, and Sally over here, she can do, you know, there's all these things that the other people are doing. I don't, and so it takes the selection pressures off the individual. And so as soon as the selection pressures are reduced on the individual, we don't have to be as smart or as strong to survive. I, right now, I could have an IQ of 70, and I can go to Trader Joe's and be just fine. I can pick up stuff, whereas hunter-gatherer, depending on their intelligence, good luck. No way. And so as a result of the social interactions, our brains have shrunk and our bodies have become weaker. Our ancestor 20,000 years ago was both stronger, more robust, and more intelligent. They would look at us as weak wimps that were not as smart. So dumb wimps. We're, we're dumb wimps compared to our... So that's the kind of surprising interaction that you get from evolutionary logic. And who knows, as we, you know, as social media permeate our lives and we spend more time on social media, we're, we're going to have these kinds of knock-on effects evolutionarily that, that um, might be surprising. 
in retrospect, the story I gave does make sense, but you, you might not have cooked it up just sitting in your chair. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it makes me just think about how we're almost externalizing our memory right now, where, you know, before we were, in that case, you're talking about movement from more lateral thought and critical thought to kind of more specialized um, thought, which is funny because that kind of goes against the idea of the the benefits we see in with synesthesia in terms of the heightened associations in the brain. But um, now I wonder, you know, what's going to happen to our brains as we have less need for memory and the need in the same way we had less need for lateral thought previously. I agree. I agree. And you, you, you could imagine that um, if, if it becomes really serious that we really don't use our memories, we rely on devices, that, there, that the selection pressures for us to have good memories would be reduced and we, you, we might have um, fewer of us with good memories. Uh, oh, very interesting. Yeah, this, this is a, maybe a, a bit of a weird segue, but you, you have a huge background in facial features and uh, mating as well, correct? Uh, it, this gets me thinking a lot about the fact that like internet dating, things like Tinder and, and, and whatnot are becoming these dominant forms of mating rituals for the entire species now. There has to be something that happens to the brain when you start playing with photoshopped images of people, eyes being enhanced, irises changing, um, swiping as a form of mate selection. I mean, have you seen any studies uh, in that field or have you had any interest in kind of playing with ideas there? Because that to me just seems like a massive realm where we're going to see technology messing with one of the fundamental driving forces of, of the species. Right. I think that it eventually will, but evolution works on a very, very slow time scale. So we're, we, you know, you, you have to have ge several generations of selection pressures before you will start to see the effects. So, so we're, we're, we will, the, any effects that we see right now will be not so much in terms of changes in our genetics, they'll be changes in how our current nervous systems processing of faces and attractiveness might be slightly modified by changes in, in the inputs. So we'll, we'll see those kinds of effects, but not deep evolutionary ones, not, not for a few thousand years probably. Um, but you're, you're right that, um, see, attractiveness is one of the very important computations that's built into our, our visual system into all of our sensory systems. When you, when you just glance at a person in, in about less than half a second, you are scrutinizing hundreds of sensory cues about that person unconsciously. You're not consciously aware of it, but you're evaluating the skin tone, the hair luster, the, the, the limbal rings of the eyes, the fullness of the lips, um, there's the, the symmetry of the face, um, the, the clarity of the white of the eye. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that you're evaluating in parallel, the, the quality of the person's voice. All of this is going under your conscious radar, but you're taking all these cues. You're doing a very, very sophisticated computation that is estimating one thing. What is the probability that this person in front of me could successfully have and raise kids. It's not what you're consciously thinking about. You know, you don't 
you know, you're not, you don't consciously go, hmm, I wonder how, what's the probability this person could, you're not thinking about that, but that's built in to your wiring to evaluate that automatically. And you, you are unaware of the computation and all the sophisticated sensory input that's going into it and all the sophisticated um, computations that are evaluating the probability that this person could successfully have and raise kids. And all you're experiencing is the output of that process as a feeling from hot to not, right? From where not means very, very low probability that this person could have or successfully raise kids. And hot is just the, the, the emotional feeling that's, that's reporting this person could successfully have and raise you know, kids. And so, again, it's not what we're consciously thinking. And so when you, so what, but it turns out the, on the one hand, those processes are very sophisticated. They're looking at all these cues. On the other hand, because it has to be quick uh, and it has to be just good enough, we have shortcuts. And so we have very, very interesting shortcuts. Um, so for example, uh, we, it, for male ratings of female attractiveness, one of the things that we're wired, that males are wired to, to value there is youth. Because uh, a, a female's reproductive span only goes from say age 14 or so up to 35, I'm talking now prior to medicine and so forth, 35 to 38. After that, you know, the probabilities just fall off the cliff. So a male who was attracted to, say, a, a woman in, during the past who was, say, 45 years old or older, that's fine. He can, he can have a fun life, you know, with, with the people he enjoys, but he's not going to pass on his genes, which code for that model of attractiveness. That's just not going to happen. So there are very, very strong selection pressures on men for, for valuing signs of youth. And one of the signs of youth is the, um, <clears throat> the width of the iris. How big is the iris as a, a fraction of the whole eye? This is something that, 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 that I propose. Because I noticed that the iris was really you know, occupied, it seemed to be around 90% of the eye of an infant. But in adults, it's only about 45%. So it's a huge change. So the, the size of the iris as a fraction of the whole size of the eye seems to be um, correlated with age. And therefore I predicted that, that males would actually prefer slightly larger irises in women than smaller. And so what we, what we could do is to <clears throat> take a, a, a picture of a woman's face and make a copy of it and just modify the irises so they're a little bit bigger in one. Uh, than the other. And we put them in front of people and say, you know, what we'd like you to do, I'm going to show you a series of faces. It's going to look like a pair of faces, but that are the same, but just, I want you to pick the one that, that looks more attractive. And most people will go, well, uh, they're the same. I, you know, we just say, you know, just, just humorous, just, just, just pick one. We just go with your gut. And they would pick the one with the larger iris. They have no idea why. And, and even though the iris was perhaps larger than you would normally ever see in the, in the normal population, they go for it. And so that's what makeup is. So when, with makeup, what you're doing, for example, no woman ever in nature has lips as red as you get with makeup, but properly done, when you can look like a clown, if you do makeup wrong, you can look, you can go over the top and you can look like a clown, but it properly done, you can get what we call a supernormal stimulus, 
a woman who looks more attractive than any natural woman possibly could. And that's the reason why makeup works, even for young women, right? Women who are at their prime, they can make themselves look super normally attractive. It's because the algorithms that evolution has built into our attractiveness module just use rules of thumb. Red lips are attractive, a little bit more red is, is more attractive, and, and so forth. So there are these simple rules of thumb, and so makeup it partly exploits them and, and can make you look more attractive than you are. So eventually, you know, as we, as we play with these things, we can actually get people to look more attractive than they could possibly look. Even in the case, for example, of breast implants, it, it turns out that breast, breast implants, the, the surgeons have found, and studies have found, um, that, that are most attractive have a shape that never occurs in nature. Again, it's a supernormal stimulus that it, it's again because effectively the surgery is hacking into this the simplified algorithm that's built into the brain um, that just has simple rules for what's attractive and what's healthy. And those rules actually turn out to value something that could never happen in nature. I feel like there's a lot of people right now who are probably changing their profile pictures to have red lips and larger eyes. <laughs> yeah, for, for, for females, well, slightly larger iris is great. For males, a slightly smaller iris is great. So you have to be, so don't do that because for women don't want boys. They don't want young boys, they, they want men. And so what we found is a slightly smaller iris for men was more attractive to the, to the females. And this is something that I feel like technology is necessary to understand because of the you know size of measuring irises and whatnot, right? And, and being able to Photoshop and, and all that. What do you think the future relationship is with technology in terms of um, the evolution of this field and your theories and, and, and I guess just the species in general, do you, do you see that technology is starting to um, help give us more insights into how malleable our perception is because it's providing things like big data and sensors and whatnot? And, you know, there's a potential future where we start to integrate brain computer interfaces like what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink for dementia, et cetera. And, and that could start to hijack perception or maybe uh, maybe even feed more truth to the, the system than the brain originally was wired to handle. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. I'm just wondering, like, what do you see in that future relationship with technology and how this is going to play out? I think it's going to be complex. I think the kinds of things you're talking about could happen that we're already sort of offloading, as you pointed out, our memories onto devices. I mean, I no longer try to have a mental map of a new city. I, I just, you know, pull up my phone, put the route on the phone and just follow whatever it says. So it says, turn left here. Okay, I'll turn left here. I'm no longer forcing myself to like build a spatial map of, of what's going on. There's some, you know, I'm, so after, you know, decades, you know, centuries of that, millennia of that, maybe some of our some of our spatial ability. Again, in everyday life, we have to walk around and have spatial maps around. So it's hard to say what will happen there. I agree that we're, so there is this kind of loose augmentation with our mobile devices and so forth. And eventually we really are gonna have cyborg kinds of implants. And I think that um, there's some interesting work there. Um, David Eagleman, um, who I think was, at Baylor and also at Stanford has done some really interesting work, groundbreaking work that could augment our senses with, with new kinds of 
information. Yeah, I saw his 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 vest, right? He has the the vest that detects and feeds it into your body as biofeedback, I think. That's right. And you could you could have all sorts of kinds of data that you'd feed into the vest, like for example, stock market data. And you could start to experience patterns in the sensations and just get a gut feel eventually about when the market's going to go up. And you could use that vest to you know make good bets on, on the market. Not because you know it's going to happen, but you just feel like it's going to go up. And if you, you effectively your own deep learning algorithms in your brain would would start to find all these correlations that you couldn't consciously be aware of. So it, it could be very effective that way. I think that AI uh, is going to have a dramatic effect on us. I think that already with deep learning, it can beat us. AI can beat us at very specific things. It can beat you at Go. It can beat you at stock market bets. So we have all these artificial special intelligences that can beat you at, at single things. But in the last 25 years, we've, Judea Pearl and others have developed for the first time the mathematics of causal reasoning. We have now a science of causal reasoning. And that's what the AIs right now are lacking. They, you know, deep learning is just about correlations. They can't build causal models that explain why these correlations are what they are they can just beat us at finding the correlations. They can see correlations that we can't do because they can see more data and they can compute faster. We right now have the edge over the machines and, and the ability to build causal explanations that allow us to, to ask, what if, what if I did this to the world, what would happen? And AIs can only do that to a certain amount. They can only say you know, the correlations. We can actually say, what would happen if I stopped this, if I intervened in the world? We're about, to be able to give machines that ability over the next 10 to 15 years. And once they really, once we've done that, then we've handed over the only edge we've got. And I don't see us keeping up at that point. I, I think that they will be the best poets, the best writers of music. They will win all the Pulitzer Prizes for novels and so forth. They will do the best science. I will no longer be needed. I will be a hack. All human scientists will be hacks. So you think 10 to 15 years, machines will have the equivalent consciousness as, as people? Oh, now consciousness is a different question. Uh, complexity of thought versus, versus consciousness. Right, that's an important question. I, I think that say, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll place my bet, 25 years, um, no human can compete in fiction writing, music writing, scientific theorizing, any domain like that. We, humans just will not be able to compete with the AIs in, in, in 25 years. Do you see an integration or do you see that as a standalone? Do you think AI is going to become something that's embodied? It's going to be something that's more subtle operating behind the scenes, something that's more integrated with people? Any thoughts on how that's going to play out? Well, <clears throat> yes, yeah, some sobering thoughts. Um, there's a company called Boston Dynamics. And the, the founder of the company and the CEO, Mark Raybert, he actually, his, his PhD advisor um, was also my PhD advisor at Whitman Richards at, at MIT. Um, David Marr was my advisor for the first 15 months. And, and after that, uh, Whitman was my sole advisor. And, and Mark 
uh, did his PhD just a few years before me. And he's a brilliant guy. And he, you know, he started this robotics company and he's been at it for decades now. And if you Google Boston Dynamics and see what his robots can do, it'll scare the living daylights out of you. They can run, they can do backflips, they can do parkour, which I can't do, right? Parkour is like a, you see this weird terrain, you know how to jump from there to there and go through in an optimal fashion really quickly. You're, you're, you're very, very, you know, flexible in the moment of what you need to do to get from here to, to there. They can do that now. So when you have robots that can do parkour better than any human, but by far, that are of course stronger than any human, and that have artificial general intelligence, it's game over. There's nothing, there's, we have to be very, very careful here. Military, various governments want these. And they will get them. I, I, I know because I've been invited to talk. I can't talk about it, but I've, I've been invited to talk. I know that they want to do this. And they're using the latest results in neuroscience and AI. They, they are determined and they will have a robot army. And it will be a robot army that, that humans are absolutely defenseless against. And once it has artificial general intelligence in it, um, it is the Terminator kind of scenario. So this isn't just science fiction. It's, it's rapidly becoming science fact. And, and the, the causal modeling um, part will be the, the last piece of the puzzle. Once that's in there, these AIs will be, become very flexible, like us. They'll be able to reason in novel situations that they've never seen before. And then it's game over. So I, I'm very concerned. Do you see that as potentially just the next evolutionary step? Um, because Joe Rogan has a quote that I absolutely love, and, and it's something along the lines of, of, we are just the caterpillar for the robotic butterfly. Yes. And it's just the idea that we're, you know, we're not the end game. And, and something that makes me think about a lot is the fact that where we are going with our technology, where our civilization is kind of... Um, heading in terms of information processing, et cetera. I don't think it doesn't seem like the brain is really capable of, of tolerating it. And that might be in some ways why we're struggling so much with a lot of, I mean, there's always been tumultuous problems and in, in a lot of ways ours are maybe smaller than some of the more, you know, grotesque wars and issues of the past, but nonetheless, we seem to be really kind of struggling with our environment as a species right now. And, and I wonder if that, that almost provides an impetus to push towards the next cognitive revolution, so to speak. You know, the, from 60,000 years ago, that was something happened. Right. That was like a cognitive shift. And maybe this is the other one where it's like, oh, now we have now we have to prepare for a next level of complexity. Um, and that may not be something that we can handle as a human mind. I, I wonder if we can handle that as a human mind right now. Right. I, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for this idea. Um, I think that, you know, I talked about how it could go terribly wrong. It could also go terribly right, uh, you know, dramatically right. You could imagine a home robot that's, you know, very, very flexible that um, is teaching your kids. It knows everything. So it has everything that humanity's ever learned, plus 
the stuff that humanity can't comprehend because the AIs have, have discovered it. And it can talk to your child and very quickly understand the cognitive state of your child, know exactly what the child knows and what it needs to know next to get it. And so these AIs could become the world's best teachers because they, it would be very personal. They would, just by an interacting with a, a, a child, they, they would know exactly what they needed to say next or show next to help the child move along. And so it could be revolutionary in terms of advancing our, our, our lives. It, it could put us in a world where we no longer need to work. The AIs, I mean, that would be very interesting. Men would have to deal with the fact that our work isn't needed anymore. We'd have to learn to just enjoy doing stuff for the fun of it, not because we're the best at it anymore. We can't, you know, there's nothing to prove. The AIs are the best at it, so just get used to that. We're, we're, we're second rate. But, but to come to terms with that and enjoy not having to work, enjoy not having to prove that you're you know, better than the robots, you could still try to show that you're better than the other guy, although everybody would know that's a pyrrhic victory because the AIs are better than any of us. But. So I could imagine that, that world also with nanotechnology involved, that we could eventually have the means of production such that we're in a post-scarcity world. Mm -hmm. I actually, I think that's a real scenario. If we don't destroy ourselves with AI and, and climate change and, and nuclear technologies, if we don't destroy ourselves, we have the potential within 25 to 30 years to put ourselves in a post-scarcity world. And I think that the, the, the hardest adjustment will be for men and, and the wealthy, because they're, they're just, the difference between the wealthy and the poor will disappear. We'll all have the ability to have as much of anything as we want. And so there'll be no, no division among us based on economics. And, and, and so for, for some people, not, not nearly all, but, but some wealthy people, there is, you know, the, their sense of self-worth is tied up with, with having more than everybody else. And so they'll also have to deal with the fact that that's no longer, that, that can't be what makes me special. What, so what mm. does make me special? And I think we, we will find new stories about what makes us special. I mean, it's sort of like, <clears throat> I mean, I, I play tennis, so I, I like to play tennis. Roger Federer has nothing to worry about for me. I, I'm just a hacker, and, and that's no problem. I, I play anyway just because it's fun. And I think that we'll do all, you know, I'll still do science, even though I know that I'm just playing around now. I mean, I used to be good at it, but the AIs are run circles. And you'll, you'll just do it because you enjoy it. And, and, and then you'll, we'll, for the real science, we'll read what the AIs have, have discovered. But, but I think there is a good world possible, but there is also an, a, a, a scary world possible. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea of uh, artificial intelligence becoming like a Jungian, Carl Jung guru who's helping everyone cope with the meaninglessness of existence and not guiding us through the existential crises. Yeah, that's, that's um, right. <laughs> well, Donald, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long here, but I also want to jump into your book a little bit real quick. Um, that's coming out very soon. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and, and when we can see that and, you know, uh, just give us a little bit of insight. Sure. So the book um, is called the case against reality. And it's being published on August 13th, 2019. So just about two weeks from now. Um, we'll have this out before then. So everybody should be able to listen to this before. <laughs> right. So August 13th. Yeah. Um, and it'll come out uh, um, in the U.S. 
um, with Norton and, and in, in the UK with Penguin. Then a little bit later, it'll come out um, in German and also in Chinese, uh, DTV in Germany and Hunan in, in China. And the book goes through some of the ideas we've talked about that um, we've evolved not to see the truth, but to have a user interface. And so I go through the logic of that, but, but for a broad audience, I, I try to just talk about the big ideas and there's no math. I, I have a little appendix, a page or two of math that I hide in the back of the book, but I just use ideas in the body of the book to explain how evolution works, why evolution leads to this really counterintuitive conclusion that we don't see the truth. We just see a virtual reality that we need to see to, to stay alive. And I talk a little bit about how this idea is really important for marketing um, and product design. I've actually used it for companies like Procter & Gamble and VF Corporation, North Face, Wrangler, Lee, and, and Smartwool and so forth. These kinds of companies have benefited from these ideas in their marketing and also in their product design. So some practical applications that, that, that people who uh, you're wondering, what's, what, what's this good for? Um, there are some business applications that is good for. And then at the end of the book, um, I address the big question that everybody's gonna have, which is if we don't see the truth, is there a truth and what is the truth, right? And so in the last chapter, I, I take that on. And, and of course the honest answer is I don't know what the truth is. But as a scientist, you know, scientists were going to try to build theories. And we then look at the predictions of those theories and see, you know, if we can try to disconfirm or, or you know, either confirm or disconfirm our theories, get evidence for or against them. So the theory that I pursue in the last chapter of my book is one that might be surprising to people, um, especially for a, a scientist who's trying to be hard-nosed. Uh, I'm proposing that consciousness is fundamental. And I, I propose a mathematical, so I don't have the mathematics in, in the chapter, I have it in an appendix, but I have a mathematical model of consciousness. And the idea that maybe reality is a big social network of interacting conscious agents, like, like the Twitterverse, right? So you have, it's a big social network. And if you're trying to understand the Twitterverse, you're a Twitter user, <laughs> there's tens of millions of users, billions of tweets, tons of stuff trending. It would be overwhelming. No, no Twitter user could really comprehend the whole complexity. You can't deal with all 10 million, tens of millions of people and you couldn't look at all billions of tweets. So what are you gonna do if you were like trying to understand it? Well, you would use a visualization tool. Anytime we're trying to understand um, big data, like big social media, social interactions, we have to use a visualization tool that, that ignores most of the details and compresses everything and puts it in a format that we can understand. And that's what I claim evolution has done. Space and time and physical objects are just a visualization tool that a particular set of conscious agents, we call human beings, use as a way of interacting with this vast social network of conscious agents. And so I outlined that idea just at top level. I'm, I'm working with a team of scientists right now on that to evolve that theory. Hopefully in four or five years, I'll have a new book where I actually take that idea to the next level. But, but I do just mention that it, it starts to interact with what people think of as spiritual issues, right? If I'm talking about consciousness being fundamental, <clears throat> and I have a mathematical model in which I can talk about 
consciousnesses interacting to create more complex conscious agents, all the way up to infinite conscious agents. As soon as I start talking about infinite conscious agents in a scientific theory, I'm talking about stuff that spiritual traditions are quite, quite interested in. But I have a mathematical model, so I can actually have theorems and proofs and make you know, empirical predictions for the first time about issues that, that are very, very deeply important to us. You know, what is life about? What are we? Why are we here? Is there life after death? We, there is a chance with this new advanced framework of conscious agents outside our space-time interface that we might be able to answer these questions not with hand waves but with real mathematical predictions and, 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 and um, experimental tests. So, so that's, that's the kind of thing I just hint at at the, at the back of the book. And it's, it's a promissory note for some work that, that we're doing right now. But I, I do see at the end the possibility that science and spirituality could learn from each other. Um, it's not going to be easy. There are big, big differences between them. Um, but I do talk about those differences and how I think that they could learn to coexist peacefully and, and then eventually even come to really learn from each other. Each will have to learn something that the other has um, going forward. The, the method of science is the right method. It's, it's very, very powerful. But some of the ideas of the spiritual traditions are very, very, the non-physicalist framework of some spiritual traditions um, are, is what I'm endorsing with this, this conscious agent model. Not, not their specific ideas, but abstractly, this conscious agent model is saying we need to go beyond physicalism, but with mathematical and scientific rigor. Um, with real precision. So I think that science and spirituality can eventually interact in a very profitable way. And I'm, I'm all for that interaction. It goes all the way back to, again, my youth, my dad was a minister, you know, I'm coming full cycle. I started with that. I had to walk away from a lot of stuff, really focus on the scientific method. But at the end, I can then come back and try to look at the questions that the religious traditions are talking about, spiritual traditions are talking about, but try to deal with them, not, not, by just saying what a book 3,000 years ago said, but asking, can we give mathematically precise models and make empirical predictions on these most important questions? They deserve the best tools that we have, and science right now has the best tools for investigation that humankind has ever found. So we need to use those tools. So I'm hoping for this wonderful cooperation between them, and I hope to facilitate that, but there will be, there's a lot of hostility on both sides that will have to be resolved. Well, you've got my attention. You've got a million questions going through my mind right now between the mini world theories of quantum physics and mythology at all at once. And I don't know how you managed to get those two ideas into my brain at the same time. So I'm excited to see more. Uh, again, I could ask you a million questions, but I'm going to respect your time here. So Donald, I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time out and joining us and, and this is a very inspiring conversation. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Stephen, and wonderful questions. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, ma'am.